My name is Andrew Johnson. I am the associate pastor here at Neartown. Um, I'm a new face to some of you. I'm a new pa- not a new face to some others. My wife and I, we moved here uh, from Tempe, Arizona to take this job uh, here in Houston. We have received such a strong and kind welcome. It's been so nice. Uh, you all helped us. Russell came out. He helped us drive out from Tempe. And then when we got here, there was a huge crew waiting at our house to help us unload. And so uh, the big blurry photo, there were many people who came and just, they wanted to say thanks. So many of you were there. Thank you so much. You loved us before you knew us. You served us before we served you. Uh, You have treated us and continue to treat us better than we deserve. So from the bottom of my heart and from our family, thank you. We love you all. We are glad to be here. Uh, Do you enjoy, kind of like that, do you enjoy when somebody actually says thank you to you? Uh, Not the offhanded, obligatory thank you, like where you know that person on the inside is like, I really don't want to say thank you, but it's going to be more offensive if I don't, so now I'm going to say it. Thank you. Not one of those. The genuine, truly sincere thank you. How does it feel when somebody gives you that sincere thank you? How does it feel when somebody gives you a genuine, sincere thank you? It feels good. How else? appreciated satisfying it's there's a wonderful thing about it because in this moment when you are thanked even if it's just for a moment you become significant for that other person you have been acknowledged as being somebody or doing something that they couldn't do for themselves okay now let's flip the scale what does it take for you to say thank you What does it take for you to say thank you? Kindness, an act done to us is kind. What else? Yeah, a recognition of either something you've done or or something they've done. Humility. Wow, somebody else did something for me. I am going to say thank you. Now, when somebody acts in our interest, if we're paying attention and we're cognizant of it, we're going to say thank you. But sometimes people do things for us and to us that are wonderful and kind and good, and we don't say thank you. Uh, we are forgetful sometimes. Now, I'm guessing that most of you, probably before I asked, weren't thinking of what it takes for you to be thankful for, or you didn't have anything in your mind that you were thankful for. But when I asked, you probably had a few things come to mind. Oh, I'm I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful to them. Because it takes somebody usually to remind you to be thankful, sometimes to remember to be thankful. Otherwise, we just kind of go on autopilot. This week is the fourth week here at Neartown in our Psalms series. Uh, This week, if you want to grab your Bible and turn to Psalm 136, uh, and if you are here and it is your first time and you didn't bring a Bible or you just forgot it, uh, if you need a Bible, raise your hand 
Anybody need a Bible? And my very kind assistant, who is my wife, who just happened to be standing back there, will bring that to you. Uh, if it is your first time, uh, keep it up high, and we'll make sure to get you a Bible. If it's your first time or you didn't have a Bible, now you do, and you get to keep it. It's our gift to you. We're glad you are with us. When I was about 13, 14 years old, I was in middle school at a Christian school, and we had a memorization assignment. We had to memorize one of the Psalms, and it had to be so many verses long. And uh, so I did what any good saintly middle schooler would do. I went for the easiest one I could find, and I had half of it memorized in like five seconds. Because Psalm 136 has your first line that talks about who God is and what he's done, and then has this common refrain on the second part, for his steadfast love endures forever. Now, Tim Keller has said, Psalms, then, the whole book of Psalms, they're not just a matchless primer of teaching, but a medicine chest for the heart, and the best possible guide for practical living. Now, once we get through this passage today, I hope that you're going to walk away with these three things. One, we are forgetful. Remember, we are forgetful. Sorry. All right. Two, God is faithful. And three, we should give thanks. We should be thankful. Now, Psalm 136, in its original context, was actually used in the temple services of the Jews. And so the priest who is leading the service would say the first line, and then the Levitical choir would sing or say the second line. So it was a call and response sort of deal. Though we are not Jewish, we are going to reenact this today. So, if you all could stand with me, With vitality and joy, I'm going to read the regular font, and you all can read the italicized portion. You can either go from the screen up here, or from your app or your Bible. Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of Lords, to Him who alone does great wonders, to Him who by understanding made the heavens, to Him who spread out the earth above the waters, to Him who made the great lights. The sun to rule over the day, and the moon and the stars to rule over the night. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, and brought Israel out from among them. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, To him who divided the Red Sea in two and made Israel pass through the midst of it. 
but overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. To him who led his people through the wilderness. To him who struck down great kings and killed mighty kings. Sihon, king of the Amorites. And Og, king of Bashan. And gave their land as a heritage a heritage to Israel, his servant. It is he who remembered us in our low estate and rescued us from our foes. He who gives food to all flesh. Give thanks to the God of heaven. Thank you. You all can take a seat. Excellent job. Now, I have been taught that it's very helpful when looking at Scripture to ask four questions. Four questions. First question, who is God? If I'm going through this passage, what does it tell me about who God is? Second question, what has He done? If I'm looking at it, it, does it talk about what God has done either for his people or for me? Third question, who am I? What does this passage or text or book say to me about who I am? And then the last question, fourth question, how do I respond? What do I do? Okay, so based on this set of questions, it kind of leads to a response at the end. Based on who God is and what he's done and who I am, I should fill in the blank. So we go to these texts and we ask these questions. I think Psalm 136 is laid out perfectly for this. So as we are going through this today, ask these questions in your mind. Who is God? What has he done? Who am I? What's my response? This psalm was written like many of the songs, psalms in the Old Testament, as well as the rest of the books in the Old Testament. The goal was to remind the Israelites of their covenant with God. For a quick understanding, a covenant is an agreement of loyalty between two parties. It's an agreement of loyalty between the two parties. God made a covenant with Israel to say that he would continue to be faithful he would continue to love. He would continue to care and protect his people. They, on the other hand, were to be faithful to him. That's what they were covenanting to. We will serve you. We will commit to you. God, faithful, always. He was clutch. Israel, on the other hand, well, sadly, they rarely remembered. Rarely, rarely remembered. They were so forgetful in reminding Israel of his covenant with them here in Psalm 136. The writers did so by restating the themes from the original covenant and covenants that Israel had made with God. And so it restates these themes. Those themes, who is God and what has he done? That's how covenants were written. 
to remind the people, this is who is making a covenant with us. And these are all the reasons why we should make a covenant with them. So Psalm 136, it reminds Israel of this all the way through. Okay, so let's take a look at verse 1. It starts off with a pretty strong command. Give thanks. Give thanks. There's no ambiguity there. Give thanks. Just in case you were concerned about how or where, it gives us a directional command to assist. Okay, give thanks to the Lord. Now, this isn't just any Lord. This is not just a master or a God. It is the Lord, Yahweh, the Almighty God who is over all, who is the one with the authority and the power. This is the Lord that they are calling them to worship, to give thanks to. And then right at the end, it has the word for. Now, this for is used as a reason clause. So if you were to look at that and say, give thanks to the Lord, and you were to say, why? For he is good. There is your reason. Because he is good. Now, I love how it's phrased. It says God is good. It's not that God has done good things. Is sometimes is nice just on actions. No, he is good. It's part of his identity. God is good. Now, before I go on, pretty sure there are going to be two reactions when I say that God is good. One, amen. Celebrate that. I agree wholeheartedly. God is good. And as Lauren was referring, there might be some of you out there who are having a different reaction. Bullcrap. No, that's not true. I've watched the news. Innocent people are being murdered by terrorists. Innocent people are being chased out of their country for what they believe by terrorists and then are being held out of other countries for the same reason. We have children all over our country and this world who are needing shelter, who are needing clothing, who are needing people to love them. And you, preacher man, are going to tell me that God is good? That's offensive. That's a joke. That's an understandable reaction. Both of these are understandable reactions. And so to both parties, I ask, you just stick with me. You stick with me. Because I... I assert we are forgetful, but God is faithful and we should give thanks. Now back to the text. Why should I give thanks? Why should I acknowledge the generosity or the action of this God? Starts out on the next line. Another reason clause. It's another for. Why should I? For. Because his steadfast love endures forever. In this passage, unlike anywhere else in Scripture, it's highlighted uniquely and that it's actually repeated 26 times. You know, you said it 26 times. It's, it's unique in this. Now, uh, it's been said, if you come to a passage of Scripture and you read through it and you see something in there three times, if you see it three times, you're supposed to pay special attention. So what do we do with 26 I mean, that, that's, that's beyond the spe pay special attention to this. Well, what do we do? We look at it. Why is this so important? What is this about this love that we should pay attention to it? Three things quickly I looked at and saw. One, 
His love, God's love for us, it's unique. It's qualitatively different than any other type of love that you are going to experience or able to experience outside of God because of the source. God's love has no comparison because God is love. He loves to the extent that love can be. I don't mean to be talking in circles. He's love. And we get to understand and experience a unique love only in God. Two, His love is constant. Now, the word used in this text is steadfast. In the Hebrew, that word is chesed. Now, chesed is one of the richest Hebrew words. Not only is it fun to say, but it has a deep, deep meaning. It combines the fact of uh, this type of love, this chesed, is, is graciousness, is faithfulness, it's loyalty, but it's also got with it this aspect of obligation. Obligation. Since when does love have anything to do with obligation? Well, in regards to a covenant God who has made a covenant of loyalty to another, it actually has everything to do with obligation. He has committed to Israel to love them, to pursue them, to care for them. And so, out of obligation to His character and His Word, God is going to keep it. This love is constant. God is constant in His love. Loyalty, faithfulness, obligation, these are actually just two sides of the same coin. This is the type of love that God has. Thirdly, as it says, His love endures forever. I want to read from you from Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Now, God is passing before Moses. He's going to show him his backside. And he is going to essentially introduce himself to Moses, which is crazy because Moses and God have been talking now for a very long time. They're already out of Egypt. And God says, here's who I am. I am a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. And that could be translated not just for thousands, but to the thousandth generation. Forgiving iniquity and transgress transgression and sin. His love, God's love, it's a deep, loyal, faithful, gracious love. And it's going to continue beyond the hearer then and the hearer's children's 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 children. It will go on and on. Now, have any of you ever had the experience that you've, ha you've bought something and then the company that warrantied it has gone belly up, so now your warranty is as good as the paper it's printed on? We don't, we don't have to worry about this with God. He isn't going to go out of business and that his, his covenant or his agreement with somebody is null and void. No, he's faithful. He's faithful. He is faithful even when we are negligent or forgetful. Because God is that way, we should be thankful. This is that steadfast love that causes us to be thankful. 
Now, the writer doesn't stop just there to talk about God's love and say that was a one-sentence chapter. Good luck. You all have all you need. He continues on. He begins, the writer begins to pile on all that God has done for Israel and describe it as a reminder to them. So, verses 2 and 3. It directs Israel to ruminate on how the God that they serve is in charge of everything. He is the God of gods. He is the Lord of lords. All the powerful beings that rule over this earth, God has outruled them. He is over them. He is the ultimate authority. He is the ultimate power. He has all of the authority that ever could be. He has all of the power that ever could be. He is, as we said at the men's retreat, He is the top dog. He's it. He's it. Now, verses 4 through 9, it continues to talk about this God and what He's done. It points Israel back to the start of all things. When this ultimate power created all that is. Observe, verse 4. To Him who alone does great wonders... Now this is seen, it's to be seen or heard in terms of creation. It's not just that he does some cool magic tricks. No. The wonders that he has made, he alone has done it. Who helped God? Who helped him? Who gave him advice on how to hang the planets? Who helped him with the heavy lifting? Who gave him advice on how to weave together flesh and spirit in humanity? Who, who told God how to do that? Nobody. Because nobody could. He had all of the experience and knowledge and power to create. And he created everything. He is it. Scripture doesn't seem to stutter. Or get confused in declaring that God created all things and that He is worthy of all the worship we can give Him. Can you see it? We are forgetful. But God is faithful. And we should be thankful. Now verses 10 through 15, they recount for Israel the extent that God went in rescuing them from pain and misery and oppression at the hands of the Egyptians. If you ever spend time in the Old Testament, this is one of those things that Old Testament writers will constantly bring Israel back to. God saved us out of Egypt. God came and sent the plagues and took us from that oppression and has freed us so that we can worship Him. When God went in there, as the text talks about, he struck down, it says, He struck down the firstborn of Egypt. That was the last of the plagues, of the ten plagues. The ten plagues that God sent on the Egyptians were these direct attacks against Egyptian gods that were supposed to be in charge of these things. They were supposed to be in charge of the Nile. They were supposed to be in charge of the livestock. And God went and overpowered them. With every single one, He jokingly asked the Egyptians, Who's in charge? Who are you worshiping? I am the one who is God over all. Listen to me. Now, 
On a side note, this past week, or about two weeks ago, my daughter came home from school, and they were studying the Ten Commandments, or rather Ten Commandments, the Ten Plagues of Egypt. And so I had in my mind that I was going to give her this nice little nugget that each of these plagues, Emmeline, was uh, about the Egyptian gods being shown how good God is and how they were not. So I said, okay, well, what do you learn? She said, well, well, God sent ten plagues on the Egyptians to show them that he was the real God and that their gods didn't have any power. So I said, cool. Glad they taught you that. I'm going to go eat my humble pie now. Uh, side note over. Uh, God, God has a funny way of doing things, and he works in this way with the Egyptians so that these Egyptians know at no point is this a coincidence. Oh, our animals just fell over and died. No. God is in charge. God is freeing his people, and he sets them free. Verse 12. It says that God acted favorably toward them with his mighty hand. Again, it's noting his power, his mighty hand, but it says further, and his outstretched arm. Imagine this. He didn't have to do it this way. With his mighty hand and his outstretched arm, he reached out for them to act alongside them. He could have spoken him free. He could have said, you're free. There's nothing the Egyptians could have done to stop him. But no, he got involved. He got in the mess of it. He got in there and said, these are my people and I'm setting them free. I am near to them. I care. God has reminded Israel constantly and is in this passage saying, God's not far away. He's right here. He is alongside you. The reminder is God is faithful. God is faithful. Now, if you know anything about Israelite history, uh, the ideal scenario is God frees them. They walk through that Red Sea that God has just opened. And then they turn around and they watch their captors get crushed. They turn around and they say, here's our promised land. Let us go and take it. That is not how it went. Instead, Israel got through the Red Sea, saw the death of their captors, looked at the horizon and said, why are we here? Send us back. We had it better before. We had it better before. God says no. They doubted. They doubted God's character, His authority, and His word, which actually happened to be the same things that Satan questioned Eve with. Doubting God's word, His character, and His authority. As a result of their rebellion, God let them wander in the wilderness so that a generation would die off and that a faithful generation would come, trust God, and take the promised land. We see in verses 16 through 22, the writer is picking up with this faithful generation. And he's showing the present, if you will, the present Israelites who are hearing this passage for the first time, that their past ancestors, they were loved and pursued by God. That God pursues them. That He protected them. He continued to act in their favor and fulfill His promises. God was always faithful. Nothing could stand in the way, no matter how big the army, how big the kingdom, God would crush it if it was standing against Him. He fulfilled His promises. At the very end, verses 23 through 26, 
the writer or writers look back at all of this, all the history that they've gone through, and they proclaim that God was faithful. He remembered His people no matter where they were. Did the Israelites earn God's faithfulness? No. It says in verse 23, it is He who remembered us in our low estate, in their forgetfulness, in their rebellion. God still remembered His covenant and was faithful to them. He was with them and provided for them every step of the way. So what should they do? This is kind of the question. It's all building again towards something. What should we do? Verse 26. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for His steadfast love endures forever. If we look back at the four questions we began with, uh, the passage, it's covered. It's covered in these answers. The writer has been clear on God's character. He is good. He is love. He is gracious. He is faithful. He is loyal. He is eternal. This is who God is. Now, being always precedes doing. I'll say it again. Being always precedes doing. Out of who we are comes what we do. The writer agrees with this. Notice, God's actions come out of His character. Because God is good and faithful and love and loving, He creates. He pursues a people. He saves. He defends. He protects. He provides. His actions are good and loving because He is good and loving. And then the writer, if you caught on, it's, it's subtle. But he gives an answer to the question, who am I? Well, well, who are we? In this passage, what does it say? He shows the Israelites that they were created. They aren't the ones in charge. They were created. They are also loved. They are covenant partners. But the flip side is also true. They're needy. They are needy. And they are forgetful. Which brings us to the all-important question that they had to ask as well. What is my response? What should I do? The Israelites were essentially called 26 times to give thanks. Every time you see this in the passage, every time we come across this, and it says, for his steadfast love endures forever, there is the hanging command, give thanks, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks for steadfast love endures forever. God is continuing to tell them over and over, give thanks because of all that I have done for you and all that I am. Here's the thing with Israel. And here's how we should look at this passage. The command wasn't simply give thanks. To give thanks to their covenant God, how they did it was to be faithful to that covenant God. They say thanks by obeying what God's asked of them. Yes, a verbal declaration of thank you to God was a good start. But it wasn't to end there. It wasn't to stop there. It was to be seen in faithful love towards Him. Israel, His servant, tried again and again to love God faithfully. And they failed again and again. 
And again, God pursued, they rebelled. They forgot who God was. They forgot God as He was. But one man came and was faithful. One Jew obeyed the covenant. One didn't run away to idols and passions, but instead stood in the place of the servant Israel, faithfully doing all that Israel was called to do until his dying breath. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of all, He came to fulfill this old covenant. And He came to establish a new one. Are we all that different from Israel? Are we different? I'm pretty sure we're forgetful. We are in need of a Savior. We are broken and in desperate need of restoration. But we are also loved deeply. We are loved deeply And God has pursued us in Jesus through His work on the cross and His his resurrection. We are given new identities. He welcomed us into His family and He established us as heirs to the throne. We went from being enemies to being sons and daughters of the King. That's a really big switch. We have in Jesus gone from being outside the kingdom walls to being welcomed into the throne room. So, who is God? He's good. What has He done? He sent Jesus for us. Who are we in Christ? We are sons and daughters of the King. And so, what do we do? What should we do? He has established with us a covenant in Jesus where He's promised faithfulness to us and He still is asking us to do the same. But He's given us the Holy Spirit to actually do this, to live faithfully. And through the Spirit, we can follow in Jesus' footsteps and we can live a full, whole life of peace. This this sermon, this week... This series, this is not about saying thanks just a few more times a day. It's not about that lip service. It's about seeing how much we have been given and then living into that gift. This faithful life of gratitude isn't just for when things are going great, though. Is God only faithful when things roll our way? Is God only faithful? When all things are happy in the world, God's faithfulness is dependent on Him, and He is good and He is faithful. He has sent us His Son, and that faithfulness and that goodness haven't changed. He is still working in us, in our lives, and He's making us whole, and He's calling us to live faithfully. And then as we are being made whole, wherever He is sending us, whatever your job is, wherever your home is with your neighbors, He has sent us to our places to bring the peace of Christ wherever we are. And to actually see us take part in His mission for that to multiply. Let us not forget 
God is faithful. Let's be thankful. So what should we do about this? So here's my specific call to all of us. This week at some point, take some time. Answer those four questions for yourself. Sit down and say, okay, who is God? Sit down and write three things. What do I know about God to be true? Okay, God's good. God's faithful. God's kind. God has blue eyes. That's not true. Just wanted to see if you were listening. So, uh, write down these three things that you know about God to be true. And then, move on to the next one. What has God done? You can go historical. He's created me. He's, he's sent His Son. Or, you can be personal. He's given me a family. He's given me a roof over my head. He's cared for me and got me through this last year. There are a lot of things that you can put into that category of what has God done for me. And then move to the third question. Who am I? I want, I want us to look at that. Who am I in, in regards to how Jesus has made me, the new identity I have in Him? I wrote down a few. Son or daughter. Loved. Chosen. His. Redeemed. Saved. Accepted. Worthy. You get the gist. Okay, now after you've answered those three questions, get to the last one of what should I do? Start again at that beginning. Who is God? Well, if, it's an if-then statement, if God is good and He has sent His Son for me and has made me His, then I should fill in the blank. What is God calling you to do? Fill in that blank for you based on your time, answering those questions. And then when you get to the end and you filled in that blank, commit to do it this week. Commit to do that thing. Yes, Thanksgiving is upon us. We are going to stuff our faces with glorious food. And we are going to share time with friends and family. But if we just walk away fat and happy, which we'll probably do, is that what God wants to see from our lives? What does it look like for us to live faithfully to our God who is faithful? Let's commit to give thanks with our lives.